Okay, so now it's time uh, to introduce our keynote speaker this evening. Please help me welcome Mark from Connecticut. Hello, everybody. <clears throat> so I have a, um, I have a couple of uh, photos we're just going to try and pass out. So it, it probably will take forever to get around this room, but I didn't know any other way to do it. So we're going to give it a shot. Oh, okay. Let's just get this uh, focused here. All right. Bear with me just a second here. Okay. It's good to be here. Um, I want, uh, hello, my name is Mark, and I'm a comp an abstinent compulsive overeater and food addict. <laughs> I want to thank the convention committee and, um, and each of you for this opportunity to share my story. I am genuinely grateful to be here. When I came into this program on April 18, 2007, I was 519 pounds. I was afraid. I was desperate. I was in a deep depression, and my life was falling apart around me. I could barely walk short distances without being winded and needing to sit down or lean on something. I was struggling financially. I was alone, even though I had loving family and friends around me. And I clung to the belief that I was not okay, that I was ugly, and I was a mistake on this world. When I woke up on that April morning, I was unaware that I would be going to my first Overeaters Anonymous meeting. I was unaware of the actions that I would be asked to take in the program. None of them, I can honestly tell you, I wanted to take. But I did. I didn't even understand or believe in this program at the time. The suffering that I was experiencing brought me to my knees. I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. In that moment, I was willing. And the one sure thing that I have learned throughout my journey through these 12 steps is that if there is no willingness, I have no program. I've been abstinent since that day, 11 and a half years ago, that I stepped into these rooms. It hasn't been without its struggles. It hasn't been without some resistance or doubt. I've surely made mistakes. But I have pushed forward until I cut through the lies and distortions that I was telling myself. Using this program, the support of the fellowship, and bolstered by God, a higher power. This is my story, the ugly and the beautiful. It's good I can see the beautiful now. I'm going to talk about my life as a compulsive overeater and then reflect on my recovery, some important things that I've been given through, through working the 12 steps. Some of it may resonate with you and some of it may not. As always, take what you need and leave the rest. So I'm going to go back in time a little bit, and I'm going to talk a little bit about what it was like for me, um, my history around food and compulsive eating, um, essentially a life of powerlessness. Um, essentially, what we're going to be talking about here is, is a wave of destruction to myself and to others around me. 
It was built on lies that I told myself about myself and the world around me. As an adolescent child, I was overweight as long as I could remember. And I've had a God-sized hole for as long as I can remember. I didn't know that was what it was. I didn't have a name for it at that time. All I know is there was some emptiness. It was like a cup that had no bottom. And no amount of love, no amount of substance, no amount of anything was going to fill that cup up. On a daily basis, I was picked on, ridiculed, and I felt rejected at school. I was a pretty easy target coming in with a God-sized hole. Um, I stole money from my mother's drawer, coins from, her, from a church collection. She had a, a, a service position to collect church uh, money, um, to count it and to take it back to them. Um, and I did that. I stole that money to buy food from a convenience store close to home that I would get the money, go into the woods and count it, go up to the convenience store, buy whatever I wanted with the money that I had, and come home and go into the woods and eat it. Um, on rare occasions when my father would take me to work, they had this thing. It's a very strange thing. It's, it's, uh, it's very dangerous around a compulsive rear. It's kind of an honor box vending machine. Essentially... It's a cardboard box with a little slot to put money in, and then just right there on display with nothing stopping anybody is uh, stuff displayed. Um, obviously, I would steal that stuff. I had to make amends for that later in my life. My binge eating was always in secret. My daily routine was to come home from school, to go downstairs to the more private area of our home downstairs, the family room. And down there, there was a refrigerator, and upstairs there was a refrigerator, and upstairs there was a pantry, and downstairs there was food that was stored. And downstairs was easy access because nobody's around. So I would come home from school after, uh, um, after being uh, just probably having a tough day every day. Every day was tough for me. Um, at least that's my perception of it. Right, and I would eat that food that wasn't mine. I would go into the into the freezer and grab pieces of cake, trying to kind of cut things and make it seem like it was. I loved the food that was already started on, because then I can kind of inch my way around it. But you know, with me, it got to a point where really you pretty much can guess that somebody was in the food, right? Because um, I'd eat the whole thing, um, and then I would hide the evidence under the couch. This is like my thing. It's like, like hiding that. So underneath the couch, in our family room downstairs, were bowls and bags and things. Um, yeah, not, uh, not my greatest days, uh, thinking about that. Um, because my weight fluctuated uh, kind of wildly, because there were no bounds to my eating. It wildly fluctuated based on what was going on, what I was feeling. Because it fluctuated uh, wildly, I would wake up in the morning and there was a fear that I had that my clothes were not going to fit. Here's this thing. I've been in this program for 11 and a half years. That is still has not totally gone away. I still, every now and then, will have a thing where I'm trying to close and I'm thinking, like, 
there's a thought that this may not fit. And it's like, oh, huh, huh. But it's still there. And that travels also to, you know, taking care of myself. I never really went out and bought myself clothes, really. I would get what I could get, you know. Um, for me, clothes buying was not about fashion, maybe a little bit, but it mostly was about what was going to fit, what I could find that would fit, what I could find that would fit. There was a huge chunk of my life where I never wore any jeans. I wore stretch pants, and then I had baggy shirts over top of those. To this day, when I try clothes on, if it's not baggy, I feel like it's not right. But that's a lie. I have to get help when I try on clothes. <clears throat> when I was in grade school, um, this is a little thing about sort of the environment. My father was an alcoholic. Um, he did the best he can. He was an amazing person. Um, uh, but if I look at what life he had, right, I get it. Um, his dad wasn't around. Um, his mom died in a, in a mental home when he was young. He had nothing, he, he had things that, he didn't, he, he didn't have things to give me. He didn't have a dad around, he didn't have a mom around, he didn't have that. And what he did, though, when he was there, was amazing. But he was gone a lot. And more and more in home, more and more, as his alcoholism progressed, he was gone more, he was gone. He was not there. Uh, it would be coming home later and later and later, right? Then it would be... Um, then it would be, uh, okay, not coming home at all one night and then coming home the next night. Then it would be not coming home to the weekend. Then it would be weeks on time when he wasn't home. He was gone. Um, this left a vacuum in his place. And the reason I bring it up is not about him, but when he came home, the neediness that within me to connect with him was huge. And I remember trying to make a connection with him. Hey, do this and do this. He used to draw pictures of us. He used to draw our face. He was an amazing artist and he drew our pictures and he would draw gorillas and things like that for us. It was some of the most amazing times. He'd make things for us. And when he was there, he was amazing. But when he was gone, it created this hole, this neediness for his attention. Almost, it's an addiction. It was an addiction. It was setting me up. It was part of that God-sized hole. Because when he was there, he loved me. I could feel it. And why was he gone? It must have been me. At least that was my perception of it. When I was in the ninth round, I went to my first pay and way. Um, and um, I, was, uh, I, was, I weighed 200 pounds. And I lost 51 pounds. So I went down to 149 pounds. This is like, this is great. Two reasons. One, when you lose the weight, they clap. Attention. That was like, um, almost, almost like sugar for me. Almost. I'll be honest. Um, but it was certainly, it was certainly something that I can, I can feel that I really wanted. And, and, um, but the other, really, the other really thing is, I was like, this is, this is amazing, because now I'm going to be okay. I just had to lose the weight. That was what was wrong with me. Now I'm going to be okay. After I lost that weight, I went back out in life. Nothing had changed up here. 
Nothing had changed in here. Right? I was just thinner. And I thought things were going to be different. Once again, I want to preface this with, this is me. This is what I'm thinking. This has nothing to do with the people outside of me. This is the way I perceive the world. These were the lies that I built. And, you know, I, I reached, right after my weight loss, I reached out to this girl. You know, first time. What did I want? I wanted love and belonging. You know? And I got my heart broken. It's not really a big thing. It was, I mean, if, you, if I think about it now, it's like that's not a big, but to me at that time, it was the most important thing. Because I had assigned the outcome through my own feelings of self-worth. I remember right after that time, I remember this. When I was writing out my story for the first time, I remember thinking this. At that moment, I said, I am not, supposed to have what they have. All my friends, all, all the friends, all the people that I was in school with did parties, they had friends, they went, went out together, they did all that, they had relationships and these things. I was like, okay, I'm ugly. This, I, this, this is the thing. Till I was 42 years of my life, I was like, I'm ugly. And, and then the other thing is, is that I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. I'm, I'm short of the mark. And that I am supposed to be, and I remember this thought, I am supposed to, my job in life right now is to be on the outside of life looking in. And I checked out. And I tried to make it something that worked for me. You know, I'm, I'm kind of in the sort of design kind of business. And I was like, okay, so this is it. I'm like, you know, Van Gogh who has no ear or whatever. And, you know, or all this other thing that I'm, I'm strange and that's okay. And I'm supposed to be different. I'm not supposed to belong in all of that stuff, you know. And, and I, tried to ma- I tried to make it something that fit. But I checked out. So during college, I gained, I gained that, that weight back. I, I went up to 250 pounds. Right, so I gained 101 pounds. Then in my senior year, I lost I lost um, about 125. I went down to 175 pounds, and I was exercising. Uh, I remember uh, going to, and this is me, all or nothing. I got two speeds, right? And and so I ran a marathon without training for it, a five mile marathon without training for it. I was in college, and I mean, you know, it didn't last long because I burnt myself out. But the thing is, is I remember going to college, there were 10, 10 flights in my dorm room, and I ran those 10 flights. I got to a point, I could do it three times. And that's crazy. <clears throat> but here's the thing, I was in college, I was on my own, so I had a place I could hide, you know, I was on my own. I wasn't in a house. I didn't have to hide things under a couch anymore. I could hide them under my couch. Right? And that I think the most important thing is, is that there's a piece where, you know, and this is a thread in me, God's eyes whole. I was supposed to know what they were teaching me before they taught it to me. What the heck was that all about? But I swear to God, that was driving me. If they presented the problem and I didn't know how to do it, I caved in on myself. Um, 
it was also the first time that I realized, and this is just a side note, of you know, I had the first overt signs of my dad's alcoholism. I didn't know he was an alcoholic, but he, I would get these late-night calls, you know, when he was drunk, and he would rail into me, and I would be on the floor. And um, By the time I got out of college, I was 300 pounds. Um, so then I started my career in 1990, um, at 300 pounds. And um, I went out and went to Atlanta and got a job. And, and, um, and, and yeah, so it was great. So, you know, now I'm on my own. I have money. But they're going to find out. They're going to find out that what they hired was not what they thought they hired. That I'm not really good enough to do this. Every day, I'm in a business where I'm supposed to come up with something new, and every day, I was terrified that I was not going to be able to do it. And so, therefore, I would come in super early in the morning, and I would work, I, like, four in the morning, coming in, working before everybody got up, um, Going through the day, at the end of the day, we'd shut work down. I'd go home. On the way home, I'd stop by you know, a fast food place and get money. I'd, I'd stop by a grocery store. I'd collect all my resources. I would go home. I would bring all of that in. I would shut the doors. I would uh, pull the blinds. I would turn on the TV, and I would check out. I always called it uh, decompressing. I had to decompress. But it was like what it really was is I was medicating myself and isolating myself and essentially the big piece around it was that I was, I was trying to armor up for the next day. Or just numb myself from even thinking about it was probably more accurate. I, I lived that way for about eight years on the edge of life and living with crumbs that I gave myself. It was all about work and going home. I remember going home on the weekends and doing the same thing and coming out on Monday morning in Atlanta in the sun and like being blinded. It was like I was a bat without all the cool sonar stuff. (laughs) So... So I, uh, I, I eventually um, moved to another job, then moved back to that job, and eventually that job ended, and I, got, I started my own company with someone else. And the problem with that is, is I started a company with a person that basically was a great enabler for me because we worked and we worked, and I lived out of a loft space. And so I basically got up in the morning, walked 10 feet, sat down at the table, got up, walked 10 feet, got in my car, drove to the grocery store, went to small stores that I didn't have to walk around in a lot. I was 525 pounds in 1998. And it wasn't working. Right? The, the, the job wasn't working. And I thought, well, we, we just don't see eye to eye. Right? No, it was because I couldn't hold up my part of the bargain. He was doing the best he could. Um, so I, was, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And I was talking to my dad one day. He goes, why don't you just come back here? Why don't you just come back here? You can stay. You can figure out what you need to do. You can lose some weight. So I did that. I moved back home, moved back to Louisville. 
right? And um, Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, long story short, I trapped myself for there for about 14 years. Um, but uh, I went back. I went to a paying way. It was the only thing I've ever done, you know, other than sort of exercising the heck out of myself to try and control my weight. But the you know, I went to a paying way, and uh, I lost 150 pounds from May to December, right? And then I got, and I had turned everything off. I basically did nothing but, you know, working on my weight stuff, right? Working on, like, trying to lose weight and, and, and whatnot. And um, uh, during that time, uh, during that time, right around December, all of a sudden, I, I got two jobs out of nowhere. I'm like, oh, well this, well, this is what the problem was. I just needed a little work and a little lost weight, and I'm good. And I remember at that moment, there was one thing, and I was like, I'm only halfway there. I remember thinking, I'm only halfway where I need to be on this weight thing, 150 pounds, not where I was. But once I got that work, it was on, and I didn't do, you know, so I just basically started crawling back up on the scales. And I had the best year financially of my life, probably the worst year or one of, it's, I don't know if I can say the worst, of my program because I just totally threw all that out of the way and didn't have a program at that point. I had a diet. And, um, and, uh, but eventually all of that stuff went because you know I'm gaining that weight back. This is my pattern. Lose the weight, gain it back, go beyond that. Lose the weight, gain it back, go beyond it, lose the weight. Because all I did was diets. That's all I ever knew. I remember one of my client meetings I was in. They have these uh, chairs that have arms, the big swivel chairs. They have arms. They have kind of like a elastomeric material on the arms. And I sat down one point, and they grabbed the pants, and, and I ripped my pants like... That much. I mean, it, you can't hide that, right? And I was in the meeting, and I played it off, and I was sitting, in, and I was sitting down. So I was like, I'm playing. I'm like, just kind of doing it from the debt, you know. We had our meeting, and everybody was leaving and all that, and it was pretty casual. And then I got my coat and tied it around my waist, and I made my way out of that meeting. I remember at that time I was in a uh, a game tournament, and uh, uh, there was a whole bunch of people there in a packed little place, and there was a bunch of tables, and I was sitting on one of those chairs that were like the folding chairs, and I felt it kind of buckle, and then it went down. And in front of all those people, I went down, and I got up, and I'm like, oh, and everybody's like, oh, are you okay? Is this okay? And I'm like, I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm okay, okay. And uh, that dang chair. And, um, you know, and, and, and so I, they got me another chair, and, and they were feeling awful, and I sat down in the chair, and I felt it kind of do and so I got up. And I spent the rest of the time in the turn, like standing up doing it. And people are like, you don't want to sit down. I'm like, no, this is good. I got a good perspective right here. I can see what's going on. So my father, my father had, uh, had got cancer. And one of the things that I noted around this time was the fact that he was, uh, he was in the hospital a good bit because they were doing what they could do. So it was always a treatment after treatment after treatment kind of a thing. And, and uh, the hospitals are long. And my mom would go up there and stay long times, and I would try to kind of go up there and like relieve her, but I couldn't because I just it was hard for me to go to travel those long hallways. Um, and one of my living men's that I have is my nieces and nephews. I would go over there. That was the one contact I had, you know, to love and belonging and to friends and whatever. It was every Friday night I'd go over to their family. To the, they invited me over to their home, and we did it every Friday night. But the problem was, 
that, you know, the parents would go out and I'd have the kids. And it was great. It was almost like having a family, the family that I denied myself for a long time. And, uh, and they were great. But everything was around food. Everything we did was around food or a good chunk of it. I was teaching them to be compulsive eater. And then any activities outside of that, I would have to try and, and coax them into doing activities that I could sit down to do because I couldn't stand up or run or do these kinds of things that they wanted to do. They were little kids. So I was stuck in years and years of cycles of the same thing over and again, over and over again, expecting things were going to be better this time. The thing is, is, you know, I always thought it was I just needed to lose weight. But food was not my problem. Food was my answer, but it was an answer that was killing me. My compulsive overeating was a ritualized escape behavior. I found, as it says in our book, pleasure and escape from life's problems in excess food. I procrastinated, I hid, and I ate. I hid from my pain by eating compulsively so I didn't learn from my, state, my mistakes. I never grew up. I had a therapist that I was talking to early on, and we were sitting down, and, I was, and, I, and I, I, we were talking about whatever. And what came up for me is I used the words, I was emotionally atrophied. And she said, hold on. I'm going to challenge you on that one, Mark. That sounds like you're saying you're broken. You're unfixable. You're, you're not broken. You have set yourself in the shade for a long period of time, and you stopped growing emotionally. It's now time to put yourself out in the light. And if that is not the metaphor for this program, I don't know what it is for me. The sunlight of the spirit. But as I've learned too, you know, it's interesting because you put your seat, you've been in the shade for a while. I had this in Atlanta. You, you go in the shade for a while, then you go out in the sunlight, and it's pretty bright. You know, part of my program is about this fact that all of a sudden I'm online. I have a life. I have friends. I have sponsees. I have family. I have, uh, you know, a relationship. And it's like, it's a lot for me a lot of times. So I have a program for that. One thing I wanted to talk about, and this is the last thing, and then we're going to go into sort of like a little bit of like that, that time at 2000. How much time do I have? Okay. Um, during my journey, I was presented with a concept of anorexia as the compulsive avoidance of giving or receiving social or emo- and emotional nourishment. And I know we, we, there's anorexia around food. But see, here's the thing. Emotional anorexia for me, I used food to numb myself from feelings. Social anorexia, my compulsive eating was a substitute for engaging in a, in a, in a life. It was comforting for me, and it kept me from going out and seeking one. It was a lie, but it did. So I want to talk real quick about what happened. So... Um, so I was in physical jeopardy, right? And I didn't know what to do. 
I could barely walk, as I said. Seat belts, I couldn't fit into a seat belt. I couldn't sit in chairs. My blood pressure was like 181 over 117. I was borderline diabetes. I had cholesterol out, out, off the chart, 217. Sleep apnea, plantar fasciitis. When I got up from, and when I when I was uh, in the bed, I got up and I put my feet down and I could hardly walk. And I couldn't even take care of basic hygiene, really. And I, but I got help. I, I, I had a hospital visit at one point when my blood pressure was out of control. And the doctors, there were three doctors there. I thought I was having a heart attack. There were three doctors, and they said, uh, Mark, if you keep doing what you're, gonna, what you're doing, you're going to die. And... Um, the thing is, I was scared, but I wasn't scared about the death part. I was scared about what they were telling me I was going to do. So, um, so they gave me a food plan, and I was like, "I'm going to do this food plan." And I, 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 I went and um, and uh, for about a month, I was on it, and then I found myself in a hotel room eating enough food for about six people. But something important happened in that, and that was the start of my recovery. And that was, I finally said, "I can't." Not if only I do this, if I can do this. I said I can't. And that kind of spun me on this little thing. About a year later, I found myself in treatment. But what was different this time? I was given a solution. My problem is powerlessness. The solution is a power. How do I get that power? Through a program of action. The thing that I got when I went into treatment, one of the most important things I got, by the time in a three-month period, I basically did steps one, two, three, three times with three different sponsors. I did step four two times. Do that. Try that. It's pretty powerful. Strike while the iron's hot. I was brought to my knees at that time. I asked for help. I got a food plan that took care of my toxic foods, my alcoholic foods. We must abstain from all foods and eating behaviors that cause us to eat compulsively. Mine is no sugar for no flour. There were no bounds to my eating before, but now I have bounds to that. I have a food plan. It says what I can eat, what I can't eat. It says how much I can eat. It says how much I can't eat. It says when I eat and when I don't eat. That is so different from where I was before. It was just on my whim, right? But the thing is, is this is, this is the thing. That was a food plan, so that's great. So that took care of the phenomenon of craving part. That took care of the part that, like, you know, took care of those foods that when I pick up, I can't put them down. Thank you. But I went to my first OA meeting. When I was in treatment, I had to go to a meeting every day. I went in there and I moved out of isolation. I went in a room with 60 people and I said, hi, Mark. And they all said, hi, Mark. And that was hugely important to me. Within three days of going in there, I had to write my food history outline. I had to write down eight pages, handwritten, of my life around food. Within three days of starting this program, not even knowing when I started it, I was going to have to do that, and it was important. And I cried during the middle of it, so I knew I was doing it right. And I had to present it to a group of people that I didn't know, that I didn't think believed me, and I presented that to them, and it took power away from it. So I was on my way. And I got a sponsor about three days after getting in. I picked a sponsor. He was a sponsor, a temporary sponsor. Then I picked a sponsor when I got back. 
right? And he took me through the steps, through the 12 and 12. And then my other sponsor took me through by basically he's been in the program a long time, like do this, do this, do this, do this. Then I picked up another sponsor, and that sponsor took me through the big book, through all 164 pages. And my program took off. You know, when I got to step two, I faltered a little bit. Because I had no concept of higher power. Right? First thing I thought is, okay, i got to go out and find a religion. That was what I thought. And I struggled for a while. And then somebody told me to act as if. And I didn't really understand what that is. And it finally sunk in because I went to a bunch of workshops on the whole thing. But the crazy thing when I started to do that is that a little voice inside me that had never, ever been there said, you are going to be okay. People were helping me. People were there for me. I was like, I need to pay that forward. <clears throat> I'm going to talk real quick about um, step four and five, just real quick. And, you know, to me, in a, in a nutshell, step four is about being awake because I was asleep for a very long time. You know, I found that fear was the, was the problem. I mean, it was the problem for me. It was at the bottom of every one of my character defects. You know, I worked step four several times. And the first time, I got it kind of barely. The second time, I got a little bit more. The third time, it took off because I was going through the big book page by page, going through and learning it the way the big book did. And in that process of understanding that basically when I'm afraid, when I am cut off from God, and by the way, that resentment, whoever that person is, whatever that event is, that's not the cause. It's the trigger. When I am afraid... And I have these seven parts of self, these instinctual drives that God wants me to have met and protected every day. But if I'm cut off from God, I don't think I'm going to get them. They're like a light switch going off. Bing, 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 bing. All these things going on. Self-esteem, you know, ambitions, uh, financial, dinging off on this situation. Right? And, um, and so what do I do? I go about trying to get them myself. So I go into the fourth column. I had one time where I was doing this thing where I, I, uh, I had some work. And uh, when I get work, it's always one of these things like, great, I have a chance to prove myself. And then right after I get it, it's like, oh, crap, they're going to find out. Right? And I basically got the deadline was coming up. Blah, 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 blah. I didn't do the work. And um, I, uh, I, I had to call the person and say, you know, and basically I was, what was being affected? My self-esteem. And I called the person and I told them, that I had somebody in my family die. So I went with my character defect of dishonesty to to save my self-image. But here's the thing. Doing that, I ended up getting the exact opposite. I killed my self-image. Not because they knew it. I knew it. In conclusion, I'm so very grateful to every teacher that God has brought into my life throughout my recovery journey. I stand on the shoulders of so many that reached out their hands to me, that loved me when I couldn't love myself, and freely, selflessly gave what they had given, their experience, strength, and hope, so that I could grow. There are so many instances instances of this over the past 11 years. I would not be here today without any of them. I want to conclude with a couple of little thoughts that were given to me along the way that have become a big part of my program. 
this is not a program of learning. It's a program of unlearning. This is not a program of figuring things out. It's a program of letting go. Thanks for letting me share. Thank you, Mark, for sharing your experience, strength, and hope with us tonight.